Well, welcome to episode 33 of the Nerd Culture Podcast. My name is David, and with me the NCP crew, Richo. I like her style, dude. Luke. You have style now? I wasn't informed of this. And Crystal. Well, hello there. For those of you new to the show, Nerd Culture Podcast is a fortnightly Australian podcast that focuses on nerd culture-related film, book, and comic reviews with a healthy dose of opinion thrown in for good measure. Not only do we have the podcast, we also have our website at www.nerdculturepodcast.com which features additional content not found on the podcast itself, including our new uh, Behind the Counter series. We're up to the second part. It's our focus on stores, comic stores, or you know, geek-related stores around Australia. So our first post was on All Star Comics in Melbourne and uh, got quite a, quite a good response, uh, quite a big response. Uh, our second post was on Gifts for the Geek uh, from Geelong, Victoria. Which got a huge response, um, so really, really happy about that. Uh, quite a lot of people have seemed to have responded to it uh, quite well. So thanks again to uh, those guys for being involved. Great bunch of guys. Support them in any way you can. And welcome to anybody who uh, decided to follow the show based on those uh, articles. It's, it's great to have you on board. We love you all. And if you know of a nerd-based store or you're an employee or owner of a nerd-based store, please contact us via the website um, because we would love uh, to include you in this series as well. Yep, we want to cover as many as we can and basically just and show our love for the people that enable us to have the hobbies that we have, you know, sell us our comics and sell us our toys and all that sort of stuff. So, so yeah, so contact us at editor at nerdculturepodcast.com. Uh, put, drop me a line. I'll send you the questions and uh, we'll get you onto the website. Okay, so for this episode, we have a popcorn junkie on The Big Lebowski, because there was nothing good at the cinema, and I refused to see Kathleen Kimbarella. And we also have Waiting for Trade, where Richo, Luke, and myself will discuss a trade paperback of our choosing. Uh, and Roundtable on NCP's Top 5 Sidekicks. Who would be number one? Doom, doom, doom. And let's face it, if you've been listening to the last 30-odd episodes of this show, you're pretty easy to guess who's going to be number one. <laughs> but that's right, it'll be fun to go through them all anyway. So first up, Popcorn Junkie. Pop, 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 pop music. Pop, 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 pop. Okay, The Big Lebowski, directed by Joel and Ethan Cohen. Um, although Ethan is uncredited, which is kind of weird. Uh, and stars Jeff Bridges as The Dude, otherwise otherwise known as Jeffrey Lebowski. Um, John Goodman as Walter. Julianne Moore as Maud. Steve Buscemi as Donnie. Poor Donnie. Uh, David Huddleston as, as the other Jeffrey Lebowski, The Big Lebowski. His name's Lebowski? That's your name, dude. Philip Seymour Hoffman as Brandt, and uh, a whole bunch of other people, including probably the only good performance from Tara Reid. <laughs> I don't know if I'd say Tara Reid's performance was good, but it's certainly the only good movie well, she's ever been involved it's in. It's the closest to her, her, her real-life persona, <laughs> I can only guess. <laughs> Although I don't know her person. I'm sorry if I just offended you, Tara. I apologise. Well, she was just in the news the other day having another drunken rampage or something at a nightclub, so yeah, I don't think you really need to worry too much. <laughs> So the Big Lebowski is um, is a, a cultural phenomenon. It's uh, absolutely huge. 
beloved by by <laughs> billions around the world. Uh, it has its own little you know mini festivals. Just recently had a showing at uh, the Asta. And what a fantastic event that was! Yeah. The celebration, just just awesome. We'll put some photos up on the website. Um, myself and a few of my friends attended, but I mean there were people in costumes. There was. Yeah. White Russians. White Russians available for everybody. <laughs> it was such a great event. It is huge. I would just like to point out, when he says a few of my friends, I was actually there too. Yeah, well, you're, and one so, of, you're one of his friends, aren't you? Yeah, yes. Uh, Luke was there, and so were a few of my friends. <laughs> <laughs> oh, nasty. He's um, got friends. So, for those uh, few people in the world that don't know what the film is about, it's uh, basically... Uh, Jeff Ligabowski, the dude, um, is uh, is a simple man, the laziest man in, in uh, Los Angeles, which puts him in the running for laziest man worldwide. Um, who uh, is mistaken is mistaken for Jeff Ligabowski, the the millionaire, um, whose wife owes money all around town. Uh, so the people who were sent to collect that money uh, mitriate on his rug, ruining his rug. Um, which causes quite a lot of uh, angst for the poor man. Well, that so, really tied the room together. That's right, because it tied the room together. So, um, the rest of the film is basically is is the adventures of uh, the dude and Walter and, to some extent, Donnie, um, in their efforts to avenge the rug, essentially, replace it. Uh, they then get caught up in you know, Bunny's supposed kidnapping, and they go up against the three nihilists, and... It's just a huge, grand adventure, all narrated uh, by The Stranger, played by the great Sam Elliott, and uh, as a framing sequence, and it's brilliant, brilliant stuff. If Sam Elliott's moustache should get its own credit. That's right. That's impressive stuff. I agree, it's an awesome (laughs) moustache, there's no doubt about it. He is possibly Um, the most bizarre character in the film. In a film of bizarre characters. You think he's the most bizarre? What about Jesus? Look, Jesus is wrong. <laughs> so it's got great, it's got great sort of uh, cameo performances, minor performances. Uh, so uh, John Turturro as Jesus, as we mentioned, the Sam Elliott framing sequence. Um, he's uh, his landlord that does the the seasons sequence. The uh, yeah, his interpretive the, the, dance. The interpretive dance. It's just just yeah. out of nowhere, <laughs> you're you're stuck in this plot to to get this get the money back. Then all of a sudden you're watching this interpretive dance. He's <laughs> just like, what's going on? Well, he did mention it was coming up. <laughs> That's true. He did worse. There's also a, a fantastic uh, minor appearance by the late, great Ben Gazzara as Jackie Treehorn, the producer of porn films. Log jamming. Log jamming. Oh, no, Gutterballs wasn't one of his. That no, was no, just no. the dream sequence. Gutterballs was, was the fantasy <laughs> sequence. But Log jamming, yes, where he, uh, where he fixes the cable. Um, so my plot um, recap was quite quite rambling. But let's face it, if you haven't seen it already, you should, by the strength of this, our love for this film alone, you should go see it. The, the movie itself is quite rambling. Mm. Yeah, well, that's true. Yeah. Yeah, it all makes sense in the end. So um, <laughs> Yeah, so like I said, it's uh, it's much beloved. But interestingly enough, uh, my first introduction to this film was... Just, uh, was from Aaron from the Black Panel, uh, he came around to my house and, and showed me the film, and I actually hated it like from the first few. And I was like, I actually turned to him and said, "Why the hell did you bring this piece of crap into my house?" And uh, for then some reason, I just couldn't get it out of my head. Like, I just couldn't stop thinking about it. And so I was like, "All right, I'll give it another go." Maybe I was too harsh. I don't know. Maybe I was in a bad mood. I watched it again, fell in love, and I've seen it. I kid you not, maybe twenty times now since, including last night. What I find really interesting about this, and I. 
I actually went to see this at the cinemas when it was released. Um, based on um, being a Coen Brothers fan, I'd loved Miller's Crossing and Raising Arizona and especially Fargo. So I went and saw it and uh, like instantly loved it. Um, to me, it's almost the, the, ultimate, um, the ultimate noir parody. But unlike most uh, actual noir stories, the dude pretty much does nothing in the film. <laughs> he, he really doesn't solve. He kind of just he kind of just wanders through the movie, and <laughs> things happen to him, and he sort of gets involved. But I, I, when I saw it, I thought, "Wow, this is a great noir parody that isn't just trying to copy noir, but actually create a, uh, almost a contrast between the standard noir characters." Yeah. I just want to say, the dude actually, whilst he doesn't do a hell of a lot, he does work things out. Well, he does in the end, but... Almost it, by accident. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, he stumbles his way through a lot of things that uh, really don't get him anywhere. And he, he really doesn't come out of it having achieved really much of anything. Yeah. He doesn't even get his rug back in the end. But what's amazing is, is that, given the following the film has now, it actually wasn't successful at all no. when it was released in fact it was hammered by critics um, condemned as a disaster after after the success of Fargo yeah so it, it, it's a genuine cult movie hmm. as in it's just developed over time over the last sort of 15 years it's just developed this following it's quite amazing to see and it's just full of magnificent performances it I mean, is yeah. Jeff, Jeff Bridges is the performance of his life and, uh, in, in many respects, uh, that role has pretty much shaped what Jeff Bridges has done. I know. <laughs> ever it's since. like it's funny watching Tron Legacy. <laughs> what if the dude was in the grid? <laughs> basically, it's basically the dude yeah. in the grid. It's 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 not yeah. it's not fair to the man, I mean, but he just does it so well. As, I mean, the only, the only I mean, I didn't really see any dude in Crazy Heart, I suppose. But some mm. people did say, you know, what if the dude learned to play guitar? <laughs> yeah, a, a little bit of that. Um, but uh, certainly the men who stare at goats yeah, is but... what if the dude was put in charge of a military <laughs> training program. Yeah. <laughs> He'll always be the dude now. It's like it's so good that um, it, it's almost like that he's, I mean, he is that person. Yeah. You know, it's just it's yeah. not acting, it's just he actually is that person. It's, just, it's amazing stuff. And it's followed by everybody else. I mean, John as uh, Walter... You know, Julianne Moore is just uh, just a bravo performance. It's just bizarre, but it's just, absolutely fantastic. You can tell she's just loving every second of it. What is that accent? I don't know what that accent is. <laughs> I don't know, pseudo-European sort of... I don't know, it's bizarre. <laughs> um, I'm a big fan of uh, of uh, John Turturro's Jesus character. It's He's just... It's, it's yeah. a cameo performance, it's, but it's a cameo performance that, in many respects, steals every scene that he's in. It's just <laughs> licking, it's, the, licking the ball before the roll. It is just a bizarre performance, but it is awesome. And uh, and and uh, Steve Buscemi, I mean, he just looks so cute and lovable. It's just bizarre. <laughs> it's, it's kind of weird. Every other film you see him, you just think this guy's a psychopath. I mean, seriously, Boardwalk Empire for sure. It's just he so, looks like a psycho, but in this, he just looks so doe-eyed and he's just so cute. You've never heard anyone call Steve Bashir cute. <laughs> and I never thought I would, but in this film, he is. He looks like a little squirrel. <laughs> squirrel. What I like about Steve Buscemi's performance in this is that it's so completely not a Steve Buscemi performance. That's right. Like the, the really the Steve Buscemi that we're all used to is the Mr. Pink, mm. yeah, type character, the Armageddon know. type stuff. Exactly right. The yeah. sort of wise cracking. 
you know, sort of very self-confident but kind of crazy personality. Yeah. Um, and yeah, this is just the complete opposite. It's, he's a cast against type, but it's really, really effective. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it's even the, 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 the absolute minor, minor roles, like uh, the, the limo driver. Ah, uh, yes. You know, Moore's limo driver. Yeah. It just has this cool you know, dialogue sequence. Yeah. He's a... You never see him again. Um, the the, uh, the, the brother Seamus. The brother Seamus. You know the, the Irish, Irish monk. monk. <laughs> the limo driver is a comedian, is he not? Uh, the limo driver is Tony the chauffeur, who's t- played by Dom Yara. But yeah, but the but the brother Seamus is hilarious. Uh, and that goes to the noir stuff, and it's got a private detective in it. Exactly right. Awesome. But the Irish monk line is just just the way he pulls it off. Irish monk. And I'm also a huge fan of the uh, the police chief from. Um, you know, oh, from Malibu. From Malibu. <laughs> Stay in a community. That looked painful, that cup in the head. Oh, just, that is actually one of my favourite sequences. Just the, that, that awesome line that I can't repeat, unfortunately. But just that just that awesome dialogue. And then, and then it culminates in the taxi ride. It's like, get out of my cab! <laughs> I hate the Eagles, man! It's uh, brilliant, brilliant stuff. But it's, it's, there's too much brilliant stuff. Yeah, I'd just like to point offer a counterpoint to all this. Um... Because whilst I saw it originally at the at the cinema, unlike everyone here who has seen it a gajillion times, I've only seen it twice. Yeah. And the second time I saw it was for the Lebowski Fest. Okay. A couple of weeks ago, and I can I can appreciate and see what people do like about it. You know, the performances are very good. There are some very funny moments in there are some very funny moments in the story, but I kind of feel like the rambling nature, which some people um, respond to, uh, sort of it gets in the way a little bit. There comes that point where you're just thinking, right, bored now. And I did get a little bit bored certainly the second time watching it. Are you serious? Yes. I, I thought want... this was universally loved by all of us. No. Harshest critic in the world. I just want to point out here that Luke's wrong. <laughs> um, I just want to point no, out I'm, that I'm not. I'm actually completely shocked. Actually, I didn't realize that you felt this way. I thought that, this, not, that this film was... Don't get me wrong. It's I thought not, all four of us just you know, I, adored it. I don't hate the film. Yeah, I think the problem there is, is that just because everybody else we know loves it, that you just, just assume that, that that just carries to every single person we know. <laughs> I don't hate the film. Point out that it's not an awful film by any stretch of the imagination, and there is stuff to enjoy about it. But um, and I can understand, I can understand its cult appeal. But for me, it's just not as good as everyone says about it. I don't think the story is as deep or as complex or as fun <laughs> as what people say. That's- I love, I love the Macaulay Culkin way that you're sort of looking at me right now. I'm, I'm just, like, I'm so Oh stunned. my god! Needless to say, you're actually now off the crew. So don't expect to sit here and look the next episode. No, yeah. okay. Woohoo! <laughs> Sunday's off. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. No, I'm kidding. We couldn't do it without you, Luke. Um, uh, Alright, fine. You've completely stunned me. Uh, let's hit for ratings. <laughs> but I, I respect your opinion. You bastard. <laughs> Uh, ratings. I give this, at best, you know, it's two and a half looks. <laughs> you should see Dave. Don't face just make people. those faces there, Dave. Actually, argue the point against me. This is I, great for podcasts. What, what do I need to say? I, I can't believe it. I cannot believe this. You've broken my heart. These gobs make people. No, that's fine. Your opinion, you're entitled. <laughs> He's just wrong, Richard. Look, I'm a card-carrying member of the Church of Deuterology. I freely admit it. I absolutely love this film. It may not be the best film ever made, 
but it would certainly be in my top favourite movies of all time. And it's just a film that I just love watching over and over and over again. And I never get tired of seeing it. And I'm going to say I've probably seen it a good 40 times now. Um, so I'm giving it four and a half. Fair enough. Crystal? Well, that's a risk of breaking your heart again. <laughs> <laughs> well, while I really, really like this film, I don't love it as much as uh, Dave Earn and Richo does. Yeah, I have to agree with what Summer Luke says. Not to the same extent. Uh, I can see the, the cult appeal of it, and I really enjoy it, and I find it quite funny. Not laugh out loud falling off the couch funny, but I do find it rather amusing. And uh, I, <laughs> Originally, I watched this film because I needed to understand what uh, David and all his friends were talking about. <laughs> because they'd just run off on some um, um, this conversation, and I'd have to uh, understand... <laughs> What all the quotes were. Um, but, yeah, I'll give this film a 3.75. Okay, well, needless to say, I, I love this film. And uh, I, I just sometimes I wish this was a video podcast because my reaction to Luke's comments before were I was just astounded. Um, but in fairness to what um, Luke was saying, I don't think it's a perfect film. Mm. I mean, it's like Richard as well said, it's not, it's not perfect, it is, but it is one of my favourites. Mm. Uh, just on that, it seems to be one of those films that you people have very different reactions. It, it's more about your own personal reaction yeah. as opposed to judging it on a on a film as its own merits. People really tend to like it for their own reasons, or they tend to not like it for their own reasons. Yeah, I, just, I mean, I, I really wish that I could be the dude mm. in real life, but, unf <laughs> but unfortunately, my own neuroses will not let me do that. Um, and, and your bowling skills aren't that great. Either. <laughs> that's true. I'm pretty ordinary. Um, so, I mean, yeah, so it's not, I mean, while technically not brilliant, there is some points in the film where it does lag a little bit. But those scenes, those sequences are so few and far between and only last for such a small amount of time that, and are made up for by the brilliance of everything else that I'm willing to let it go. So I'm also going to give it 4.5 uh, for that reason. But I just, I cannot stress enough, see this film. And to help you do that, NCP are actually going to give away a Blu-ray copy of The Big Lebowski. More details later on in the show. Uh, so win yourself an actual Blu-ray copy of The Big Lebowski and, you know, find out if we're right or wrong. Once you've seen it, if you win, let us know. See how, how you liked it. If you didn't, do you agree with Luke? I really hope you don't. But <laughs> if you do, hey, that's your opinion. Coming up next, Waiting for Trade. Okay, so Waiting for Trade, we're... Uh, Richo, Luke and myself uh, discuss a trade that has interested us uh, recently. Um, one day we'll get Crystal involved as well. Mm -hmm. <laughs> wow. <laughs> if, if Luke could kill. Uh, but for the moment it's just us. So first up we'll have Luke with... Fatal. Take it away. Um, Fatal is the, one of the most recent series by writer Ed Brubaker and artist Sean Phillips for Image. Um, it can, the first trade has just recently come out. The series has been a bit of a smash. The first trade focuses on Nicholas Lash, um, who is heir apparent to uh, writer Dominic Reigns, um, from the crime writer from the 50s. Dominic Reigns is dead, um, and Nicholas Lash has become the executor of his estate. At the funeral, Don Nicholas meets a mysterious woman called Jo, who has some connection to Dominic Dominic's past, in spite of the fact that she looks unbelievably young. Going through his um, going through Dominic's effects, he stumbles across uh, an old manuscript 
that predates Dominic's first published manuscript. Yeah. And believing that whilst he's not a fan of um, Dominic's work, believing that he stumbled onto a great you know, literary um, cash cow, hmm. takes, takes the book home, but is then attacked by a couple of mysterious strangers. In the nick of time, he is saved by Joe. In spite of the fact that he's still grievously injured and is recovering in hospital, um, he begins to read the manuscript. The majority of the story is actually set in the 50s, detailing um, Dominic Reigns as, as an investigative journalist, his attempts to unravel this strange secret society with Cthulhu-type overtones, um, and their, um, their run-ins with a certain corrupt individual, but he is also entranced by Josephine, the fatale of the story. Um, Sean Art Phillips' artwork is astounding. He's got a very de- he's got a very deceptive style. It's on the surface very simple, but his um, use of shadows and his maison scène and just overall storytelling ability makes um, this story look quite complex. If I have any problems, it's really more with Brubaker. His writing is on the whole pretty good. He's good with dialogue, and he keeps things moving at a very brisk pace. But the big problem that I have with this and with his work in general, you know, with some of his Batman work with Captain America, is that he lacks, on occasion, he lacks the emotional resonance that it needs to really capture, really get your audience involved in the story. There are some great ideas. I love the Cthulhu. The reason why I wanted to read it in the first place was the noir element combined with the Cthulhu-type um, element, which, you know, I'm a big fan of both. But the more emotional stuff, which is sort of there, but needed to be brought more to the surface to involve me some more, I thought was really lacking. I give this three looks. Awesome. Um, I actually haven't read it, so but on the strength of there that I know what the story is roughly about, mm. I'm definitely going to give it a look. Mm. It's actually pretty cool. Awesome. Thanks, Luke. So next up, we've got Richo with The Secret History. The Secret History um, was originally published in France as a series of graphic novels in the, the European style. It's recently been picked up and published in trade form by Arkea. Yeah, we'll go with Arkea. Arkea Publishing. They release um, a heap of stuff. Have you seen their website? Yeah, yeah. They're um, they've actually they've tapped into the European market quite nicely. Actually, yeah. they seem to really be uh, that that seems to be really a, a big success for them. The story is written by Jean Pierre Picau and illustrated by Igor Cordy, Leo Filipovic, Goran Suzuka, and Ghetto Ghetto Ghetto. Doesn't really matter. Mm. Yeah, well, we, we, we murder names all the time. Every podcast I've ever listened to murders. <laughs> murder names. <laughs> I initially picked up this book out of being a little bit disgruntled with Marvel and DC um, and just interested in trying something different. And um, I am a huge fan of Igor Cordy as an artist. Um, he's a little bit unjustly maligned, I think, for his American work. You really? Um, well, it was awful. Yeah, but when you're given the task of drawing an issue in three days because the other artists can't keep up a regular schedule, you can understand how the work might be a little bit rushed. Yeah. Um, but um, if you see some of the work he has done in Europe um, on books like Smoke and on The Secret History, he's actually an absolutely fantastic artist when you know given the time to actually produce the work properly. <laughs> so, so The Secret History opens... Um, in the time of primitive man with a shaman who carries with him five runes of power. And upon his death, he passes four of those runes to four successors, Dio, Rika, Aka, and Erlen. And the fifth rune is effectively lost. 
he gives a warning to all four of them to use the powers wisely and uh, not to be driven by, um, you know, greed or destructive purposes. And, um, well, straight away, they kind of they kind of ignore that right from the very beginning. I was just going to say, isn't that like telling school kids not to jump on the bridge? <laughs> very much so. Very much so. Um, so what proceeds from there, then, is quite literally, as the title suggests, A Secret History of the World. Volume 1 of the trade paperbacks actually takes you from, well, after the scene in Primitive Man, actually takes you straight into the Exodus, um, the Jews fleeing Egypt, and carries you all the way through to uh, World War One. And along the way, you encounter numerous periods in, in history, especially in French history. And then you see how basically most of these events have actually been manipulated or controlled or at least influenced by the four carriers of these four runes who are effectively like bickering children, constantly fighting one another and trying to gain the other's runes so that they will gain um, all of the power. So The Secret History is actually quite a dense and very complex book to read. Because it jumps around through history and especially through French history, I found that if I, if I knew the periods in question, and if I understood even the, at least the basics of it, that I had a much greater understanding and appreciation of those chapters than I did of um, the chapters where my history is a little bit hazier. Having said that, it is a fascinating book to read. Um, the character work is, is very interesting and very strong. And it did help me actually then go and find out about these periods of history, or at least enough to understand the chapters that I wasn't quite as strong with. It, most importantly, at the core of it, even in those historical um, historical periods, the core is still the four rune carriers and their conflict with one another. Because it's a it's a European book of originally produced in graphic novels, um, different chapters are drawn by different artists, and whilst the art overall is of a relatively high standard, I found that. Um, Igor Cordy's artwork especially really stood out for me. It's very, very moody, really captures the periods beautifully. Um, and he seems like one of those artists that can really just draw any historical period well. And uh, the artwork of Filipovic is also very good. Um, but what I really liked was just being able to read a story that is just written completely differently to what you see on the American market. The European pacing is very different. The stories are often denser and more complex. And and it was nice to be introduced to a series of new artists whose work I would probably never have encountered had it not been for this book. Yeah, so overall I would give it uh, four looks. And I'll definitely be picking up volumes two and three of this series. You're saying Marvel and DC have done you a favour? Absolutely they have. Uh, I should point out for anybody that's actually interested in reading uh, The Secret History. Volume 1 is available, but it's actually very expensive. However, if you go to Arkea's website, you can actually order it directly from them. And that's how I did it. And I managed to pick it up in, for about $65, including um, shipping to Australia. Whereas going through Amazon or eBay, I, I was finding it was $100 or more. So volumes two and three are widely available and are still cheap. But yeah, I'd recommend possibly actually going straight to Arkea if you want to uh, pick up volume one. Volume three is actually a pre-order. Yeah, it's yeah. out uh, next month. Yeah, a couple yeah. of weeks. Yeah, cool. Um, 
Well, yeah, needless to say, I haven't read it because I um, didn't want to pay $100, but then you told me about how mm. you can get it cheap and stuff. Um, but uh, I have read, um, there are excerpts of it uh, available online, like as, like chapters. Yeah. Um, so I have read those, and uh, I like what I read. Cool. So, Thanks, guys. Um, okay, so... Okay, so I want to talk about um, a Thunderbolts trade. Uh, Thunderbolts is from Marvel and uh, was originally uh, a team of supervillains who pretended to be heroes um, and eventually evolved into those same villains uh, trying to redeem themselves and actually become heroes instead of just pretending to be heroes. Uh, the run that I want to discuss is Warren Ellis's run, which was uh, originally published as uh, issues 110 to 121. Um, it's set uh, just after Civil War and what Marvel was going through at the time, the whole Civil War thing about, you know, everything's all hard-edged and dark and horrible because Norman Osborn's involved and all that sort of stuff and, and really suits uh, Warren Ellis' sort of style. Um, it was originally released in two separate trades, Burning Down the House and Caged Angels. Um, but I'm going to focus mainly on Caged Angels because I think it's actually the better part of that story. Um, Burning Down the House is good too, but Caged Angels is what's got uh, some more interesting things happening in it. Um, so like I said, uh, it's Warren Ellis as the writer. The artist is Mike Diodato. Um, and you can sort of take or leave Mike Diodato. Some, some people love him, some people don't like him. That's neither here nor there. I personally don't mind him, he's fine. Uh, the story, uh, the Caged Angels story uh, follows on from the Burning Down the House where uh, Norman Osmond has arrived to take command of the Thunderbolts and uh, has basically twisted the, the idea behind it. Most of the original Thunderbolts are now gone, and so now you've got a, basically a bunch of psychopaths on the team. It's, it's, they've completely twisted around the ideal. Um, so you've got Moonstone, Venom, uh, Radioactive Man, who's actually not a psycho, he's actually pretty cool, uh, Swordsman, um, who, to give you an idea of how crazy Swordsman is, he actually, uh, he's... Uh, one of the Strucker twins, and originally their idea was that they could hold, they would hold hands and activate their powers. But his sister's dead, so he actually takes her skin and wraps it around the hilt of his sword to activate his powers still. Gross, and because, man. And because he's a psychopath. <laughs> and Bullseye, uh, who everybody knows is insane. And uh, Penance, who formerly Speedball, who is now uh, taking on the Penance persona to redeem himself after the, uh, the events that kicked off the Civil War with the destruction of the school uh, by Nitro. Um, the first story deals, uh, basically, the first half of the story deals mainly with um, how these, the team interacts now that Moonstone is in charge and she has no idea how to, how to, how to uh, operate a team and uh, their efforts to, t to bring in some uh, superpowered combatants. But the second part of the story is uh, the, the tide is turning against the Thunderbolts. Like, in the first, the first half of the story, the Thunderbolts are actually, it's a huge marketing campaign to make them popular. Um, they've got action figures, uh, they've got a, a TV show, Who Wants to Be a Thunderbolt, hosted by Stan the Man Lee, all right. Um, it's just a huge push to sort of get their, their ratings up. Uh, but then the tide sort of turns over the course of, because of the Civil War, uh, really drags um, people down, essentially, and, and people sort of are now turning against the whole Registration Act, um, as in the, pub, the public, not just the superheroes. Um, and so, uh, and because, uh, because the Thunderbolts are the public face of it, um, uh, opinion starts to turn against them. A group of uh, superhero, uh, superheroes uh, super slash supervillains uh, who all have psychic powers decide on a plan. They're going to infiltrate Thunderbolt's base and then subtly use their psychic powers to manipulate the team because they're all unbalanced anyway except maybe for Songbird and Radioactive Man and sort of basically flip them over the edge and get them to destroy themselves from within. 
Um, it's a really, really cool player. Actually, I, I, it really impresses me. I'm surprised no one's, no one's tried to do it before that in, in my knowledge of, of comic history. Um, it's, it's really, it's the way they go about it is very cool. And uh, they almost succeed. Um, I, I won't give it away. I, I want you to read it because I think it's cool. Um, they, but, and they all, but they almost pull, us, pull it off. It's uh, really, really cool. Uh, the, other, the other reason I like it is because it uh, basically explains a bit more about what Penance is all about. Now, originally, when I first heard about the Penance character, um, I thought, this is disgraceful. I mean, what is the point of this? So you've taken Mr. Happy-Go-Lucky um, Speedball and turned him into this S&M freak. And it's just, it just it just reeks of desperation. It's like, well, let's just how do we make uh, a character cool? And it's just it's just terrible. But this really delves into his um, his thoughts because he has a um, a psych session with uh, Len Sampson, Doc Sampson, who uh, who comes in to sort of check on him and make sure he's okay. And it sort of re- re- reveals a, a lot of what's happening inside his head and and why he does what he does. Um, so it, it sort of lessens that a bit. I mean, I still think it's a bit ridiculous, the whole penance thing, but it may, at least now it makes sense. And it's always good to see Doc Samson and some of the stuff that Samson does during this uh, during this run, especially uh, with Moonstone, is just hilarious because they've fought uh, in the past and they really just really hate each other. So um, there's a lot of cool little sort of stuff. So that's basically it in a nutshell. Um, the psychics um, almost complete their plan. Uh, they almost pull it off, but they don't in the end. Um, and... Uh, but their, their mission is, is kind of a success because it results, it results in Norman becoming the Green Goblin again and uh, going on a rampage and killing a whole lot of people. And it's all filmed. So Sonbird feels that uh, she can now use that in her, to her advantage because they, they absolutely hate each other. Like Norman wants to do certain things with the team and Sonbird wants the team to go back to the way it was because she's grown, grown to love these people. Not the psycho versions, the original versions. So yeah, so um, so I'm a big fan. Um, I highly recommend it. It's uh, it's one of Warren Ellis's uh, better efforts. Um, there was a period there where uh, Warren was put onto just about every book you can think of in order to sort of make it cool and sort of you know it's, it gets some more sales happening. He was he was on everything and the X Men and all sorts of crazy stuff. He was everywhere for a part period there, and I think this is actually one of the one of the times where it worked um, in comparison to some of the others. Um, uh, I'm a I'm quite a Warren Ellis fan. Um, he's not. He's not the greatest. It's not everything he does is awesome, uh, but he's consistently good, which is which is always a bonus. Uh, so I give this uh, book uh, four out of five. Um, do you need to have read Civil War to understand what's going on in Thunderbolts? Oh, no. I mean, the concept of Civil War is nothing new. I mean, it's, it's, it, it, but it references enough to say you would know what was going on. Cool. Yeah. yeah. So you say so you don't have to read all of Civil War mm. to know what's going on. I mean, you, I mean they re, they mention Stanford and what happened there and and the Registration Act and I mean the whole series is basically about the Thunderbolts tracking unregistered heroes down. So mm. yeah, you don't have to read the Civil War book or whatever. Cool. But read it anyway because yeah. Civil War's cool. That sounds cool. It sounds like a typical Warren Ellis um, bring on bringing some cool ideas to bump up sales to a flagging book. Yeah, which is what he which, which is, is how he, how he works best. So. Yeah, which is what they were what they were doing. Mm. Yeah. I would disagree one hundred percent with. Pretty much everything you've said. Um, in fact, this is exactly the kind of book that has pushed me away from Marvel over the last sort of, you know, eight to ten years, just slowly but surely pushing me towards things like The Secret History. Um, I, and I must admit, I was a fan of the Thunderbolts before Warren Ellis took over, but um, you made a comment about um, uh, it reeks of desperation and an attempt to make a book cool. And that's exactly what this felt like to me. It was like, let's just trash everything that was interesting about the book to begin with. 
rewrite some characters completely different to way that they've been depicted for the 10 or 15 years before that. Um, throwing Norman Osborn because having crazy people is cool and, you know, throwing Bullseye because having crazy people is cool and, um, yeah, and make the book all dark and gritty and, I mean, it's, it is, to me, this is exactly why I've kind of gotten more fed up with Marvel over the years. I mean, um, I, can, I can understand I, that. I mean, at first glance, you would see that. But I don't see how they've rewritten the characters, though. I mean, Songbird is exactly the same. No. Yeah, she Not definitely is. I actually read the, the storyline directly before this that deals with Civil War and Zemo's plan to get the villains and all that sort of stuff. I just thought was was boring and of, of uh, no See, I had the complete opposite. I actually found that that team, the setup, the stories, all of that was actually really interesting. The characters were quite com complex and um, Alice has come onto it and has basically stripped all of that away and, you know, made the characters quite, for me at least, quite two-dimensional and quite boring. Um, I think bringing Mike Diodato onto the book with his, you know, third generation Mark Silvestri wannabe art style um, just didn't work for me either. I, I'm just not a fan of his art. I don't think he's a good storyteller. Um, and I don't think Alice was really telling a very good story anyway. Um, and I say that as somebody who is actually a fan of a lot of Warren Ellis's work. But this book, yeah, reeks of desperation done just to make the characters seem cool. I mean, that's exactly how I... Uh, how I interpret this run, and yeah, um, but the good thing is, is though it does make them cool. No, it <laughs> makes them annoying. It really, I mean, I really, I just don't see the appeal of this version of the book. Fair enough, actually. I mean, yeah, I, I, everything before this, I was not interested at all, and basically this, and then everything after this, it actually got me interested. So, well, that seems to be a Marvel standard these days. Yeah, just destroy everything that a book was, so that you'll get new readers in. Um, but sometimes but it potentially, works for the better, though. Sometimes it does, but I don't think it worked here. But then I don't think it worked with Avengers either, and yet it became Marvel's you know biggest franchise. So clearly, I'm not in the majority on that, and I just don't think that I'm Marvel's target audience anymore. Right. Alternate opinions. I like it. That's good. Cool. So that's uh, waiting for trades. Uh, now, as, as uh, we did with Popcorn Junkie with the Big Lebowski, uh, we actually have uh, a giveaway for this section as well. So we'll actually be giving away a copy of Caged Angels, the trade. So, uh, like I said, it deals with um, issues 116 to 121 and is the, the better part of the Warren Ellis run. So uh, wait for details at the end of the episode to find out how you could win that trade paperback. Coming up next, Roundtable. Okay, so this for an edition of Roundtable, we're going to be talking about NCP's top five sidekicks. Doom, doom, doom. What is a sidekick? Well, according to <laughs> sidekick is an individual who assists the the main hero or villain uh, in their efforts. Um, and is a character in their own right. That's not the official wording, so I just wanted to put a little twist on it. But uh, that's essentially what it is. So it's basically the, the, the people that let the hero do what they do, and without them, the hero couldn't do what they do. And I have to admit, the actual trying to define what a sidekick was was actually part of the difficulty of oh. preparing these, these lists in the first place. I just, I had to sort of, I, I had a list of people, and I'm looking at them thinking, I wouldn't actually class a lot of these people as psychics, so suddenly I'm crossing people off, and then so I actually had to go back first and work out my definition of a sidekick before I could 
make a list. It was yeah. really quite quite difficult in the end. It was. I mean, I best. I, I think the best example would probably be uh, Spock. Um, so, I wouldn't. I personally don't define Spock as a sidekick. Mm. I think he's. I mean, they're a, they're a partnership. They're actually the, the three of them. The, tri- the, the, the triangle. Mm. Um, but every you know every definition of the sidekick that I saw, funnily enough, is like you know referred to Spock. So <laughs> I was like, okay, well. You know, swaps allowed. But yeah. I did. But I, 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 did then decide that you know, I mean, obviously Abbott and Costello. Which one would you define would be this? You know, mm. or the two Ronnies, or I mean, they're yeah. they're not psychics. I mean, they are definitely a team. Mm. And then um, th- things like um, Mulder and Scully came up, and yeah. Steed and Mrs. Peel, Peel. and well, once again, where you've got to look at. What uh, a definition of partnerships versus a definition of sidekicks. Yeah, so, I agree. I, yeah. I don't think either, any of those would be sidekicks. Okay, I mean, Mrs. Mrs. Peel is more of a hero than Steed, I think. Scarecrow and Mrs. King. Yeah, Scarecrow and Mrs. King. Another good one from our childhood. Awesome. Anyway, so let's go. So that's where our definition of sidekick is. I mean, if you agree or disagree, let us know. So starting off at number five, George Costanza and Radar O'Reilly. So, uh, George Costanza was Crystal's pick. Why, George? As we just stated, it was really hard to define what a sidekick was. And um, I was getting, I was finding it hard to complete a list of five. So, I was going through lists and George just kept appearing. And he's one of my favourite all-time characters. Um, so, I'm, not, I'm still not sure I would define him as a sidekick. But uh, he's... he's He's, yeah, I just I just like George and that he's just an honest, genuine character. He doesn't make any pretenses except when he's trying to do the opposite <laughs> of everything that of all his instincts. So his life will come out better. But yeah, I just... I'm out there, Jerry. <laughs> like like a lot of us, he works hard and ensuring that he doesn't have to work hard. <laughs> I just want to point out something there that George Costanza is actually one of the more, one of the few instances where. The supporting character is much, much, much more interesting yeah. than the main character, and in some ways became the reason why um, Seinfeld became such a hit. In the end, you came back to it because George yeah. was very well written and very well acted. That um, helps too that Jason Alexander is a very good actor, whereas Jerry Seinfeld, Isn't. while he tries, he's, he's main training. He's a comedian. He's not really an actor. Mm. Okay, so next up we had Radar O'Reilly. I mean, who doesn't love Radar, of Can course, I... from uh, the, the TV series MASH? What's interesting about Radar is that he's not a sidekick to any one character. Yeah. He's basically a sidekick to the entire army base. Yeah, it's like the army base mascot. Mas- yeah, yeah, so it's it's actually quite an interesting sidekick situation that he has because he is very different. Usually your sidekick is a sidekick to one specific person. Mm. I, I think calling him a mascot kind of belittles him a little bit, but I see what you're saying. No, no way yeah. does it belittle him. Every single person in that camp loves him and would do anything for him. Yeah, and but that, he makes him sound like the cute little puppy. He is a cute little puppy. <laughs> but he's more than that. <laughs> he is more than that, I agree, but he is that as well. He facilitates and, the communication needs of every single character in the show. He's just he's so awesome, that's and, he's, and he stays awesome for the entire run. He's mm-hmm. just and he's also, a much beloved character. Also, interestingly, the only carryover from the original Mash movie. Mm-hmm. Um, same actor. Yeah, same actor actually played. And of course, the characters came across, but yeah. the actual same actor. Yeah. 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 Okay, so moving on to number four. Our number four top five sidekicks are Baldrick and Kato. Baldrick, greatest sidekick. Ever. You've got to love a man that has cunning plans. <laughs> as cunning as a fox that graduated from Cunning University? Absolutely. <laughs> oh, 
Oh, Baldrick is awesome. Uh, well, he was Black- on a, a couple of people's lists. Well, Blackadder is certainly one of the funniest shows and cleverest shows ever written. And uh, the the role that Baldrick plays is essential to the show. Without him, it just wouldn't be the same. Mm. Um, but it's sort of interesting. I mean, you know, for those who've not, you know, for the four or five people who have not seen Blackadder, and shame on you, it's because it, you know, details various points in English history. Yeah. Baldrick as a character gets changed. I mean, Blackadder as a character changes as well. But Baldrick actually starts off being the smart one of the duo and then gets proceedingly dumber yeah. each generation. <laughs> yeah. So by the time you get to um, uh, Blackadder Goes Forth, he is not even a shadow of his former self, like... completely dependent on Blackadder for direction, intelligence, uh, inspiration... He has a clear evolution. He has a clear... Yeah. No, de-evolution. Oh, de-evolution. I, de-evolution. <laughs> I said de-evolution. No, um, but um, still, you know, does, it has some very fine moments. Matches wits with the um, with the evil Pit the Elder in Blackadder 3. Yeah. When, he, when they, you know, try and get... Um, try and nominate Baldrick for Parliament. Which I think <laughs> yes. is one of the highlights. Um, manages to save Blackadder on one occasion, even though he's actually going there for the autograph of the highwayman who's captured Blackadder in the first place. <laughs> Great moments. He uh, succeeds almost despite himself. <laughs> and our other one was Kato, who was actually on my list. Um, Kato uh, is from the Green Hornet and uh, basically steals the show. Mm. Um, and it's not, not just opinion. I mean, in uh, the Asian territories where Green, Green Hornet was shown, it was actually called the Kato Show, mm. um, officially. So this is about when Bruce Lee was um, portraying him. Um, it's He's a phenomenon overseas and uh it i think just a great character i actually prefer him over the green hornet really um just because of his his sense of his his skills and uh just his sense of justice mm. it's got to be fair to say that the reason why the hornet is still remembered mm. is really because of kato exactly. and, that, and a lot of that does does actually go to bruce lee as well yeah. um but people actually remember kato a lot more the green hornet does nothing yeah. whereas kato was this cool character um, flipping around the screen yeah, and doing all this cool stuff. And so it's, it's the interesting thing. It's one of the few instances where the sidekick became more famous and more well-liked than the actual main character. Yeah, exactly. And Bruce Lee's performance is, is mm. standout, and which what eventually led to his movie career and mm. the legend that he became, and mm. uh, justifiably so. I mean, Kato's even still cool in the current Green Hornet movie remake, which That's was the... awful. Mm. He was the only cool thing in it. That's what I say. He was actually still Kato. Yeah. The Green Hornet wasn't the Green no, Hornet. He's just some doofus. <laughs> it's just terrible stuff. Uh, so moving on to number three. Our third grader sidekicks are Harley Quinn and Spock. Uh, Harley was on Richard's list. Well, Harley is actually possibly, I think, the greatest super villain sidekick. Yeah. She provides a nice insane counterpoint to her insane lover but well, kind of lover but not really the joker and is just an incredibly entertaining character provides a really good comedy relief at times but can also be completely insane <laughs> um and an interesting character in her own right um and i think it's notable that um she actually first appeared in the animated series yeah. but is such a great character that she's actually come across in through the comic books Usually it's the opposite way around. It's, it's very rare. And she's not only come across from the cartoons into the comics, but has actually come across very successfully. She has had her own series. She's now a, a regular member of the Suicide Squad. Um, granted, yeah, in, a form, yeah, in a form that I don't 
really like. I, I like the sort of more just nutty, playful version that she she was initially. But um, yeah, they've gone more with the Arkham City version. Of the yeah, movie, like exactly. Sexed up version. Yeah. Just to give you an idea of how much they've they've ruined Harley the character. Her statue is her bending over forward <laughs> so that you can see down her top. It's like yeah. this is not how Harley's meant to be. Yeah. Harley's meant to be the playful Harlequin. Mm. Yes. But um, yeah, but I think that's a credit to the character that she's actually able, been able to succeed, you know, in the comics, in the video games, and it's a real credit to uh, to the animated TV series and the writers and creators at the time. And and much beloved, I mean, Kevin Smith named his daughter after her. Yeah, which is uh, pretty cool. Because I mean, a lot, she's a lot, awesome. Yeah, because she is awesome, and it's a lot better than Nicolas Cage's effort. <laughs> I mean, at least Harley makes sense. <laughs> yeah, naming your kid Cal L is probably not the what best are you way thinking? to go. At least uh, he didn't name him Elvis. <laughs> that's true. And, uh, of course, Spock. I mean, it's just, he was on, I think, everybody's list. I still um, disagree that he's a sidekick. Yeah, yeah. and he, he didn't make it onto my list. Oh, yeah. So to settle that, um, the, is he a sidekick, is he not a sidekick, the way I looked at it was that he is, first of all, a supporting character, Captain Kirk being the main character. He is a very strong supporting character. And also an offsider who goes, you know, assists not just his captain, but his friend. So if he's not a psychic, he's certainly an offsider to the main character. Yeah. Um, and you know, it doesn't. He's not just the guy doing his job. He and Kirk um, are very strong friends, and it's always made clear that if Kirk is in trouble, Spock will go and um, do his utmost to save him. It's just a magnificent character. Just a magnificent character. Um, the the duality, the internal conflict between his human side and his Vulcan side, the cool nerve pinch. Yeah. You know. Spock, irrespective of being a cool sidekick, Spock is a, just a great character in general. He's brilliant. I mean, we can go, we can go on and on about Spock, mm-hmm. and we, if we, we when we eventually do the original series, Channel Zero, and I'm sure we will. So if we go on, it's uh, he's brilliant. Which means you'll have to watch the Blu-rays. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> um, that's actually the exact reason why I didn't put him on as a sidekick. Yeah, he's such a such an amazing character in his own right, and he is one of my favourite characters. So I didn't include him on this list because I don't like him. I just don't see him as a sidekick. Yeah. I just yeah, think he's, I can see the he's too good a character in his own right, and has too many stories in his own right. If we were doing the top five heroes, and I think we actually did do this, wasn't yeah. Spock? Spock was right. Spock up, yeah. was up. Was, was he right was up indeed? There. Yes, he is such yes. a good character that yeah. he is, you know, acceptable as both the offsider <laughs> and as the hero. When we do our well, our favourite uh, alien characters he'll be in the list as well yeah, absolutely <laughs> our favorite characters with elvish features he'll be in there <laughs> our favorite spock like characters <laughs> our favorite characters sure he'll make that one had the word spock in them <laughs> so okay so moving on to number two our second grader sidekicks are hawk and robin hawk who is the the epitome of cool yes um hawk is my number one choice and i'm saying this not as a person who has watched Spencer for Hire, and I'm livid because I really want to see it. For those of you who don't know who Hawk is, um, he is a creation of Robert E. Parker for his Spencer series, Spencer being um, a hard-boiled private detective. And Hawk is a well-dressed African-American mercenary. Captain Sisko. Played by Avery Brooks in the TV show, who later played Captain Sisko in Deep Space Nine. But he is... And there's a, ni- there's a nice duality about Hawk. On one level, he plays up the whole African-American ghetto thug. Yeah. But then when he gets into a case, uh, the more refined personality comes in. The the incisive thinker, the the reasoner, the guy who will actually step up to help his friends. He is unbelievably tough. Yeah. You could throw just about anything at Hawk, 
think you could throw anything at Spencer, his friend. And Spencer will uh, fight back, but buckle. Hawk is almost invincible. But the the great thing, the, the key thing about it is that he and Spencer will fight for each other. There's a, a great scene in a book, in one of the early books called Early Autumn, I believe, where they have um, faced this mob boss um, who's given Spencer a bit of problems. The mob boss is on the floor at, at their mercy, and Hawk tells Spencer he's got to kill him. Spencer says, I can't, he's unarmed, he's on the floor, it goes against my code. Hawk just goes up to the guy, shoots it, shoots the guy right in the head, says, I don't. But there's a nice little, I'm killing him because he's going to come after my friend, um, subtext to what he said, which is why I think Hawk is such a good character. Um, I didn't put Hawk on my list. He's a great character and I think, but... I'd be too scared to call him a sidekick. It's just because he beat me up. Um, it's interesting because um, I actually That's encountered awesome. I encountered Hawk through the TV series. Yeah, same. Um, and um, whilst whilst yes, when when you talk about it, I can actually see that yes, he he serves as a sidekick. I've just never perceived him as a sidekick, just because he's such a a powerful character in his own right and such a powerful presence. Mm. He's more interesting than Spencer. Yeah. But Spencer was cool as well. But I'm, I'm not saying he wasn't. But well, the interesting thing is is that um, if we do consider him a sidekick, which you obviously do, then he's actually one of those rare sidekicks who got his own spin-off TV series. Yeah. A man called Hawk. <laughs> and, of course, the character that no sidekick list would be complete without, uh, Robin. Um, yeah, so, I mean, we, we give him a bit of grief. I mean, like Luke said, he's actually not a fan of Robin. And uh, and I'll be honest with you, I, I actually am not a big fan of um, the earlier Robins, so... Um, Dick until he becomes Nightwing, where he becomes his own character, which I think is awesome. Um, and of course, hated Todd like everybody else did. Uh, I, I did quite like Tim Drake uh, when he was portraying Robin um, before Fifty Two and is now Red Robin. Um, and uh, everybody, uh, I I can't find anybody who doesn't like Damien. I think he's <laughs> he's awesome. Who's the current Robin in the Fifty Two you know, New Fifty Two universe? Um, but of course, uh, as Crystal said, I mean Burt Ward as the TV Robin, who's the ultimate Robin. <laughs> awesome. Just don't ask him for an autograph. No, and uh, yeah, don't ask him. For, uh, read, his, read his autobiography. <laughs> it's just gold. <laughs> it's a page turner. But I just, I mean, I just don't think a sidekick list would completely complete without Robin. I mean, he is. If I mean, as soon as you think of a sidekick, Robin is the one. I mean, Batman and Robin. It's just, it just, it's in part of the, the popular culture. You know, zeitgeist. It's just the way well, it's going to work. Well, he's a character that has actually survived seventy. Two years, seventy-three yep. years of comic books. Yep. Plus, as you say, TV shows, um, radio shows, movies. Um, m- movies, but uh, less. Yeah, I You did well notice that I didn't mention the movie, Robin. <laughs> yes, so I want to point yes. that out. Um, you know, has had his own comic book series uh, yep. a couple of times. Plus, you know, numerous miniseries and one shots and things like that. So, yeah, he's just as far as the kid sidekick phenomena go. Um, in the superhero world, he was arguably the first and most definitely the most famous. Yeah. I mean, brought brought in to bring in younger readers. Yeah, and and it worked. It worked. I mean, this is how you can't you can't fault that. Can I just point out that you know my favorite comic book story of all time is where Robin dies. <laughs> <laughs> Terrible. I like that. But that was Jason Todd. I think we all wanted him dead at the time. Uh, it, 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 irrespective of who it was, Robin Death, does die. Death in the Family is your favourite Batman story. It's my favourite comic book story of all time. Of all time, Death in the Family. <laughs> it's a great story. It's awesome. Notice that he didn't just say... I'm not saying it's not a great story. It's just, it's just you're, you're a harsh, harsh, harsh man. Yes, but, but he, but didn't, the, he didn't just say Batman. He said comic book of all time. All time. <laughs> 
Okay, so that of course brings us to our number one. Uh, I said at the start, it's just amazing. You just buy a clear winner. To give you an idea, Robin had five votes. Our number one had 16 votes. And that is, is of course, Dr. Watson. The, the ultimate psychic. Without a doubt. Um, Watson completely... First of all, he narrates the story. So he's the one telling us about what Holmes is doing. But he's integral to what Holmes does mm. in every way. He's, he's the absolute textbook of a sidekick. You know, he's intelligent in his own right. He's an interesting character in his own right. But he is really there to enable Holmes to do all of the amazing things that Holmes does and then to tell us about it. Yeah. Um, there, there is no sidekick that fulfills that sidekick role as perfectly as Watson does. And, and never once overshadows Holmes in any stage. No. It should be pointed out there are two non-Watson narrated stories. That's true, yeah. Um, which occur later on in the cycle. And both of those stories suffer dramatically from it. Yeah, mm. absolutely. Um, even, yeah. The, even the current, uh, current uh, BBC series, uh, TV series mm. has him sort of semi-narrated by having his blog yeah. <laughs> which, yeah. which is the framing it's, it's, and, he's, and portrayed awesomely mm. it's, it's, it's a great great series check it out and that's just one of the things I want to bring up about Watson that for a long time there was this perceived notion thanks to um, Nigel Bruce's um, performance that Watson was just a duddering old um, buffoon yeah. um, that you know he was always sort of gumming and guffawing and looking exasperated at Holmes's um uh, ingenuity and intelligence as if he couldn't possibly calculate it yeah. forgetting the fact that Nigel Bruce had a lot of charm um, and was quite personable as an actor um, but for a long time his portrayal actually defined who Watson was incorrectly and mm-hmm. it's only been recently that people have gone no Watson is a, is a smart man in his own right he's not as intelligent as, as Holmes but he is quite capable and to sort of deny that is actually doing a disservice to both Wat- Watson Holmes and Conan Doyle because mm-hmm. why would why would Holmes associate with someone who was a bubbling otherwise he would want to associate with someone who he, he would consider not his equal of course because mm. nobody ever is mm. but at least somebody who could be his friend on a, mm. on a standing where they could have conversations yeah. and stuff it, it works very well for the Basil Rathbone Nigel Bruce era of, mm. of, of Sherlock Holmes to actually portray him that way and it's a credit to both actors and sort of that they create a, a very sort of lasting bond between the two, mm. yeah. a, a bond of friendship. So they still keep those elements. So even though he has that sort of bumbling mm. personality, they draw on other aspects of what makes Watson integral to Holmes. The, the grounding of Holmes a bit, the, yeah, the giving Holmes right. the humanity. Yeah. So he doesn't, so he doesn't, his intellect, towering intellect doesn't just take over. Yeah, exactly right. It's, is, just, it's, it's unfortunate. Yeah, it's unfortunate that some of the subsequent uh, depictions along those lines didn't capture that aspect of mm. it. But fortunately, we've seen a turnaround now, and um, yeah, we're back. We're back to a Watson that is more in tune with what kind of. And of course, you got that story, that, that movie where Holmes. Is is the fool, and it's Watson that does all the work without a like, clue. Without a clue, gold. Michael Caine and Ben Kingsley. <laughs> I believed it too. I, like, yeah. <laughs> I can see that. Um, so yeah, so I mean, yeah, Doctor Watson is number one. I knew that was going to happen, and yeah, uh, it's yeah. it's it's crazy about saying it just is the quintessential is. sidekick. It's a brilliant stuff. Um, there was a, a couple of honourable mentions. I just want to I want to mention that it was quite a few honourable mentions, but there's just two that I want to mention. Uh, now, Richard actually forgot to put. Uh, this person into his list so we'll do it as a special mention one of the greatest psychics ever Samwise Gamgee yeah I'm really hitting myself with this one because I consider Samwise to be 
basically the most awesomest uh, character in Lord of the Rings. Not necessarily the best, but he is just awesome. And let's face facts, without him, we were, we'd all be screwed. Like, without him, Frodo would never have gotten anywhere. Yep. <laughs> and, and, and there is a, a couple of great scenes involving him, but um, the one I love from the movie where he actually picks Frodo up yeah. and carries him up the mountain. And, um, but most importantly, what makes him such a great sidekick is that the, he is only doing everything he does out of his love for Frodo and his friendship with Frodo. I mean, he, he's willing to go through hell, basically, just to make sure that his friend is okay. And yeah, yeah and I'm really, he really should have been on my list and I didn't actually occur to me until yeah. basically Kicking this morning yeah, that, that I didn't include <laughs> Sam. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, we Sam. We gave him a special mention and he deserves it because he is awesome. I have to have to strong strongly strongly disagree. What? Well, while on an intellectual level, I agree that Sam is a is a sidekick. On an emotional level, I think Sam is the hero of the story. Absolutely, for right. every reason that you just said. <laughs> Absolutely right. We cannot call him a sidekick. <laughs> I'm totally with you. Yeah, I'll look, with that. yeah, I'll go with that. It wasn't right. that I forgot him. It was that he's the true hero of the he's series. Too, he's too worthy. He's, he's too good to be the psychic. We're not worthy. To be the greatest hero. <laughs> That's right. And I believe he was, actually. Yeah, I think we tried to get him on there. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, and, so, and the other one was uh, Remington Steel. So, Richard, explain oh, why. Yes. Yeah. Um, there is... Look, there, there is a... There are a few possibilities I could have chosen here um, of the sidekick who um, is actually the main character. Um, uh, to explain, Remington Steel was a television series from the 80s uh, starring Stephanie Zimbalist and Pierce Brosnan. Um, Stephanie Zimbalist's character is a private, a female private investigator, but what she finds is that no one will take her seriously because she's a female private investigator. So she creates this false identity for herself of this detective called Remington Steel and then hires Pierce Brosnan's character to actually play the role of Remington Steel. So technically he is the sidekick because he actually he's hopeless. He's, he's he can't <laughs> he solves almost nothing during the entire run of the series. Um, and he's really just there to be the charismatic public face of what Stephanie Zimbalist is doing. So so he is effectively the sidekick to her. But at the same time, he's also the title character of the series. Um, and I just find that to be an interesting um, an interesting kind of twist on it. Twist on the thing. Yeah. Um, a- another one that could have been chosen for that kind of role would have been Penny from yeah. Inspector Gadget, because she fulfills yeah. the same sort of role. She's the one that's doing everything, doing whilst Inspector Gadget is the one getting all the credit. Um, but I just find that 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 approach to the sort of main character sidekick relationship is actually really interesting and very different and so yeah so when we were doing this i just thought yeah Remington steel just came to mind because it was a really entertaining show and but it, it had that little twist that just made it really stand out anyway so that's uh, that's it for our top five sidekicks uh, agree or disagree we'd love to hear your opinions and uh stick around because we're in our giveaway section later on it all ties into this segment all right thanks guys coming up next coming soon <laughs> Okay, so for our coming soon section, uh, I just want to, before we get into the cinema releases, I just want to have a special mention uh, for FEC Comics Extravaganza. Uh, so FEC Comics, which is uh, for evil children comics, is an Australian comic uh, company, publisher. They're going to have their extravaganza at All Star Comics, uh, which is level one 
410 Lonsdale Street, Melbourne, um, on September 22 at 6.30 p.m. They'll be premiering uh, three comics, Cranburn Issue 4, Fireside Tales, and Seven. Uh, so Fireside Tales is a anthology with three horror stories, um, which sounds really, really cool. Um, and Seven, which is a sort of a modern take on fairy tales, with sort of a sort of a slight horror twist, um, which is pretty cool. I don't really know much about the story, but the cover looked mad. Um, so yeah, so that's September uh, September twenty two at six thirty. Uh, so for all you Melbourneites, uh, All Star Comics fans of the show, All Star are going to be hosting it, uh, FEC Comics, and uh, some of the crew will be there. I unfortunately can't make it, uh, but uh, some of the other crew members uh, have said that they will attend. So. Uh, we'll be, they'll be wearing their t-shirts, so if you if you see them in there, say up, go up and say hi. They'd love it. And if you're trying to work out who's who, I'm the handsome one. <laughs> say hi to those wearing Hell's Eye. <laughs> if you're trying to work out who's who, I'm the intelli- intelligent one. <laughs> <laughs> that, Oops. Leave, leave that in. <laughs> That one's yeah. good, actually. Yeah. It does sound like it's going to be really cool. Uh, it's a bit of a shame that I can't attend, but you know we'll be there representing. Uh, so then moving on to cinema releases. September 20, we get uh, Australian film Bait, um, or Bait 3D, I think it's called, whatever, about a Queensland uh, shopping centre that gets flooded uh, by a tsunami and then everybody inside gets attacked by sharks. Um, sounds terrible, but the trailer I've seen actually sounds, it actually looks pretty cool. Um, I- I'd actually heard of it, but that sounds. Yeah. It does sound terrible. Like it sounds like it's like D movie grade. Sounds like. But uh, the trailer, I think it pulls it off pretty pretty cool. Okay. Um, you also get uh, Diary of a Wimpy Kid, Dog Days. Um, I haven't seen any Diary of a Wimpy Kid movies or read any of the books, and then I'm I'm not their target audience anyway, so that explains it. Because he's too old. Yeah, I'm an old man. Uh, <laughs> we also get animated film Hotel Transylvania, uh, where Dracula hosts. Uh, a hotel and um, gets a bit overprotective when uh, a human shows up and falls in love with his daughter. Um, I don't know. Doesn't really, doesn't really do it for me. But sounds like an animated monsters. Yeah, it doesn't. I don't know. It doesn't really work for me. Uh, you also get Ruby Sparks, uh, which is pretty cool. About a, which sounds pretty cool. I haven't seen it, but um, about an author who creates. He's like he's hopeless with women, so he creates a female character for his stories, who is then then comes to life. So it's like a fantasy rom-com. I don't know. It sounds all right. Yeah. And uh, Secret of the Winds, which is the next Tinkerbell animated film. So not a very good uh, day for cinema releases, September 20. Uh, but then if we get on September 27, we get the film that I've personally been dying to see, and I know the rest of the crew are pretty excited as well, uh, Looper. Yep. Yeah, definitely it's, looking forward to that We'll one. actually be reviewing that in our next episode, so I'm really heading out to see that. So before we finish up, uh, I just want to mention... Uh, so like I said at the start, uh, we posted the behind the, the layers behind the counter. We've just had a huge surge of likes um, on our Facebook page and feedback uh, in the past week. And uh, it feels good to let you know nerds know that these shops are out there. And, yeah, and you know to to really sort of promote these stores as well. I Keep these people in business. Out. Absolutely, we need them. Yes, um, we we need our nerd shops to create our nerd culture. That's exactly right. Feed our addiction. Uh, so. I'm just going to give a couple of shout-outs. If I don't mention you, I, I'm really sorry. Um, I just I just grabbed as, as many names as I could <laughs> out of off, you know, Facebook and uh, people that have sent in emails and all that sort of stuff. So in no particular order, thanks to Nath, Matthew, Mitchell, 
Darren, Mordecai, awesome name, Wade, Deborah, Scarlett, David, and Patrick. And, and, to, everybody, can... and to everybody else. And I can see you too. <laughs> <laughs> so don't forget you can contact us by email at feedback at nerdculturepodcast.com or post on our Facebook wall at www.facebook.com forward slash nerdculturepodcast and throw in a like in there as well. Or tweet us at at nerdculturecast. Or you can leave a comment on any of our posts on our website at www.nerdculturepodcast.com There's been a couple of cool comments on the, the Who Review posts. Very cool. Um, and also, don't forget, the most important is that you can rate and review us on iTunes and subscribe to the podcast. But I guess if you're listening to this, you have already subscribed to the podcast. But if anybody else who isn't, who is listening onto the website, subscribe to the podcast. We'd love you to. Tell your friends. Tell it's your friends. Terrific. Tell your enemies. Tell your dog. Tell your frenemies. <laughs> Tell anybody. <laughs> Just imagine a little dog wandering around with an iPod. <laughs> that would be awesome. Now, as I mentioned earlier, we're going to have uh, two giveaways. So we're giving away a copy of The Big Lebowski on Blu-ray. It's pretty cool. It comes with a film, uh, digital copy as well, extra I would, features. I would hope it comes with a film. <laughs> it would be pretty sad if it didn't come with a film. Special features only. <laughs> um, and we're also giving away uh, the trade paperback of Caged Angels, the Thunderbolt, Lauren Alice Thunderbolt story that uh, I love and Richard hates. Um, so <laughs> to uh, win either of these, all you need to do is send uh, an entry into feedback at nerdculturepodcast.com with the subject line competition and nominate which prize you want to win and answer this question. Who would you like to be your sidekick? If you could have anybody as your sidekick, who would that be? It would be me. That'd be cool if somebody said us. <laughs> see if you could. That would you'll, be bad. You'll most likely win if you put our names. <laughs> no, no, down. So I'll just I'll get all the I'll get all the entries and uh, put them in a hat and we'll randomly pick one out. So there's no right or wrong answer here. Yeah, so just send that in. Who would you like to be your sidekick? Send it into feedback at nerdculturepodcast.com, subject line competition, and re- don't forget to nominate what prize it is that you wanted. Entries need to be in by midnight, Saturday, September 29, and the winners will be announced on episode 34, which is out September 30. So, midnight, Saturday, September 29. I just like the way you winked seductively there, even though when nobody can see you. I know, <laughs> this, this should be recorded. <laughs> so, next episode, we have Popcorn Junkie on Looper, uh, a dust jacket on The Paradox Men by Charles L. Harness, which was Luke's pick, and a Channel Zero on The Big Bang Theory. See you then. That's it for me, David. Thanks from the crew. Richo. Things turned out pretty good for the dude in the end. Luke. I don't know. I still disagree about that film. Crystal. I'm just going to take it easy. For all us sitters. Mm. Thanks, guys. Bye now. Bye.